0: Hello, welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Patricia Vasconcelos. This podcast is an educational program by the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the USA, AFPC USA. On today's program, the challenges of the most mined country, Ukraine. In almost two years of the war with Russia, Landmines along exploded bombs and artillery shells have exposed millions of people who are in danger. Mitzi Pardew has seen and experienced this problem closely. Today, the Foreign Press podcast interview an inspirational woman, war correspondent, author, writer holding degrees from Harvard and George Washington University. Thank you so much, Mitzi, for joining us today. Oh, what a joy to be with you. <laughs> so, you have traveled to Ukraine three times since the invasion started and visited an active landmine field. What have you seen?
1: Oh, I've seen firsthand some of the absolute horror of what the Russians did because whenever they left a place, you know, an occupied place, it's just crammed with landmines. In fact, they have these amazing machines. I think I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but I'll do my best. I blew it. But uh, there's this machine that can fire off up to 6,000 landmines uh, from, from 13 miles away. And the Russians just very deliberately pick some of the most prime agricultural land in all of Ukraine. And if you've got 6,000 landmines over a few miles, that 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 farm can't be used until it's cleared, mm-hmm. and right now the estimates are above forty percent of prime agricultural land is landmined, and and for what I've seen myself, I I had the huge privilege last summer of being part of a Halo Trust landmine clearing uh, effort, and right outside of Kiev, I. Th- I think there are about, depending on you count how you count it, probably at least ten active landmine fields within like twenty miles of Kyiv. And they're they're in this case, the ones that I saw were just deliberately uh set in places where people might like to go for mm-hmm. a picnic or to gather mushrooms. You know, the, the the goal is to kill Ukrainians. And you asked me what I saw. I had the privilege of there's something called, it's a metal detector that you swing. And I'm going to guess, trying to remember, think back and remember, maybe it weighs seven or eight pounds, and you swing it in an arc. And actually, arc is the wrong word. You, you swing it pretty much in a straight line, and then if there's nothing there, you move forward another eight inches. Mm. Uh, and my experience was I found a battery. As, as in, like something that would be in a cell phone.
0: Um, luckily, it was a battery, right?
1: Luckily, it was a battery, but yeah. it was an area where, uh, if you've, if you found, or if you didn't find something, and you stepped in the wrong place, uh, you could lose a foot. And I know that for certain because, oh, uh, I, I'd interviewed a guy right before visiting the active landmine field, and. Uh, he told me, he didn't tell me, uh, the interview was by by phone. He had been active in landmine clearance, and he stumbled, he tripped. And by extreme bad luck, where his foot landed, there was a landmine. Uh, he now does not have a foot.
0: So taking this case, Mitzi, you have spoken with survivors of landmine explosions. What do you have heard from them?
1: One of the things that just astonished me beyond belief is pretty much everybody that I've talked with wants to go back. This particular case, uh, I asked him an indiscreet question, but I'm a reporter, I get to do this, and he was okay with it. I asked what the actual moments were like, and he said, first of all, it was deafening. Second of all, it was extremely clear to him that he had lost his foot. He knew how to put on a uh, a tourniquet. And one one of his you know, you, you work with other people around you, one of his other people came and put an additional tourniquet on, but his foot's gone at that from the ankle on it's it's gone. And he said that he was calculating that he could still do land mining because he could crawl along on his belly without meeting oh. the foot. Oh my god. And- and how much dedication is that and then and then other people that i've talked with in the active landmine area like i most of the people i talked with were women and very often they'd been deliberately hired by halo because mm-hmm. you need an income and and they wanted to provide an income for women and so i asked the women why did you choose this maybe you could have been a secretary behind a desk and they said the satisfaction of knowing that you could save one child to save the parents from the anguish of losing a child or have the child not have to have lost a leg, they said that was just worth anything to them. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very dedicated group of people that do this.
0: Mitzi, um, an investigation carried by the Human Rights Watch um, last year found mines in 11 of Ukraine's. 27 regions. This is, as I said, numbers from last year, 2023. So according to that investigation, both sides use mines. With a conflict without an end date, how, in your perspective, how to protect civilians and soldiers? Uh, Oh,
1: you know, it's it's just an extraordinary problem because as, as you say, both sides do it. My impression is the Ukrainians are a lot, just infinitely more careful about it. They know where they put the landmines. The Russians just spray them from machines. So I'm not as worried about the Ukrainian landmines. But I, I heard one guy who was, you know, who wants to, to stop the landmining. And he said in his view, the best way to stop additional landmines is, and this is a direct quote, an Abram's tank. And I said, What do you mean by that? And he said, We need to get this war ended. Uh he said, There's there's kind of a, a rule of thumb that for the longer uh for every day that a a war continues, it can be a month of clearance. And boy, after two years, which is pretty much what we're coming up against, yeah. I've I've heard estimates that if we don't have some new technology or spend vastly more than we're spending so far it could be 40 years before ukraine's free of landmines so
0: the four decades four decades
1: 40 years four decades
0: Mm
1: -hmm. oh it's just a catastrophe i does it blow your mind that people can do this to each other
0: definitely um All those experiences, you lived very closely while visiting there. One of these experiences, you visit a school near Kiev, right, when the city was under an active attack. What you saw and felt while there in that school?
1: I I left with amazing admiration for, for the Ukrainian children because when I got there, all the classes were being conducted in bomb shelters, and the class that I got to interview members of, uh, it was a math and physics class, and they were 12-year-old kids there. And the teacher told me something that I take to be extraordinary. This is a city under active attack. I'd even seen um, from a, a cell phone that tracks incoming rockets that there were 40 heading towards Kyiv that day. Uh, okay, so imagine that you're a kid, you're in a bomb shelter, and... Do you feel like studying? That's what I wondered. The teacher told me that she came to class that morning with her arms just full of games for the kids to play, to distract them. And the kids told the teacher, Oh, put away your silly old games. We're here to study math and physics, because when the war is over, it's us who will help rebuild the country, and we want to study, and we want to be worthy of it.
0: Is that not just beautiful? I can feel you your emotion when describing this. What are you feeling now? Are those the same feelings you felt when you were there? Oh. Comes into your mind that makes you feel like that.
1: Okay, the deepest admiration in the world because I was watching courage mm-hmm. and bravery and selflessness, and yeah, um, it's creeping right back into my voice. And uh, I appreciate that you pick it up because, I mean, can you even imagine? Okay, we're adults. Imagine you're twelve; you don't have the resources to draw on that we do. You're you this just stuff coming at you, and yet still you maintain your bravery and your your you're wanting to serve. It was beautiful. And I asked kids what it was like being a student in a time of war. At that time, the Russians they still do this, but but particularly in that day that I was there. Uh, the Russians would particularly focus on taking out the the power stations, and I'm I'm talking about December. All right, in December, uh, a power station that I visited the day before was blown up. So you know I knew what had blown up, but the consequences of it was uh, that the kids very very often just can't get to study because if you have no light, what do you do? And one of the kids told me that for him, one of the hardships of being of studying during wartime was there would be rolling blackouts. And, you know, some days you know no ability to study at all. But he said before the war, he liked to study from like six to ten. And he would, you know, he'd study very hard and very disciplined about it. But he said, with the war on, most often, at least the, in December, that the blackouts would be such that he could never be entirely sure. But generally, he'd get an hour to study, and it might be at eleven at night, mm-hmm. and he'd have to pack four hours of study into one hour, and you know, when he's tired. And another thing that that I got from them is, what. Well, the day that I was at the school, it was called Indiversal, the name of the school. And I think it had like 300, 350 students, but there were only 125 students there that day. And I'm you know, asking, where are the others? And it turned out that they were stuck in a subway that had lost power. Hmm. And so here are these students learning their math and physics and chemistry and so forth. Half their their students, their fellow students, aren't there. They're stuck in a subway. The city's being attacked. Uh, They can't know that their apartment, when they go home, it isn't rubble. They can't be absolutely certain they'll see their parents. And yet, they're still studying.
0: They're still studying. Mitzi, throughout your career... Um, many articles were written about anti-human trafficking. Do you believe that Ukraine has become a landmine for traffickers? How so?
1: Oh, human traffickers prey on the vulnerable. And I've read that there there's as many as 8 million Ukrainians who crossed the border to get out of Ukraine, but very frequently they don't speak the language of the country they're going to. they don't know how they're going to get a job. They don't know where they're going to stay. And the trafficking cartels just park at the borders. And I'll tell you what I've seen myself. Uh, I, I was in a line of people leaving Ukraine. I was leaving, uh, you know, I, I'd been there six days and I was leaving. And I'm going to guess that it was a three or four hour wait. And I watched a couple of guys with their cell phones acting as if they were taking selfies of each other. But I had been warned what to look for. I was told when you see a couple of guys taking selfies of each other, notice the angle of the cell phone. Is it aimed at them or is it aimed behind them? Mm. I looked carefully and yeah, they're taking photographs, they're spotters and they're taking photographs, which they will transmit to the other side of the border. Of the people that they think are most likely to be vulnerable and they look for say a woman who's really tired maybe it looks as if she's been walking for five days uh maybe she's got kind of the hundred yard stare where she's just sort of so tired and out of it that that she's vulnerable so the spotter will take a picture of her say she's got an orange blouse or a, an orange jacket uh He'll transmit the image to the trafficker on the other side. The trafficker won't waste his time with the people who are doing just fine. Go right up to her and say, you look as if you could use a hot meal. Oh, I can get you a place to stay. And, you know, I'm doing this because I love people and I feel it's just, I'm called on to do this. I'll help get you a job. But my van leaves in five minutes and there are a couple of other girls there. Hurry and... uh, her next stop may be in Turkey or or some other country where she's trafficked, probably for the rest of her life.
0: Many of those experiences, I mean, see you shared with articles published um, all around the world. You have written many articles about the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, uh, some of which are opinion articles, such as the one published by the Wall Street Journal last December. This is a mm. specific one, How Ukraine Keeps warm, warm When Russia Bombs. But I would like to talk about another text in which you describe an experience in Warsaw shortly after visiting Kiev. You narrate in first per- person in that, that text what happened as soon as you entered the hotel room. Suddenly, you describe that you couldn't breathe what happened that day okay this i'm going to guess
1: would be of particular relevance to our audience because mm. i have heard from many sources i can't swear that it's true but there are many people who tell me that this is true that it used to be that we journalists were a protected class of uh, you know don't mess with the journalists i've heard that that's flipped that putin targets journalists now and i believe that i'm one of them because I was told that I had written articles that were so anti-Putin, and I did my best to make them so. Uh, I was told that, that I was targeted. And when I left Keith and took a train to Warsaw, 19 hours, I arrive at my hotel at the airport Marriott, and I've checked in, and as I'm walking towards the elevator, I see a man and a woman And it would be really hard for me to even give an indication of why this was so. But there was something about them that made my Spidey sense, my Spiderman sense. Hmm. think, I don't want to get on the elevator with those two. And I I wish I could put into words what, what made me feel that I didn't want to get on the elevator with them. But I listened to it. I looked at my watch and turned away as if I'd forgotten an appointment or something. I came back half an hour later and to my relief they weren't there. I got on the elevator and on the second floor, those two people got on the elevator. <laughs> I I got off the, my floor, the fourth floor, and piecing together what happened to me, well share what happened. I get into my room and I suddenly have those most terrible trouble breathing. Just I I've accompanied people at their death who had trouble breathing and i think my breathing sounded like that i mean it was just horrendous and i'm sitting on the bed the house phone is in the other side of the bed i knew that i was in real trouble but i couldn't even make myself roll over on the bed to the other side to pick up the phone to call for help
0: uh, what, what you did
1: oh uh, I, I it was as if i was like almost paralyzed. Plus, I was having so much trouble breathing, I wasn't sure I could even speak into the phone if I could. But I happened to have my iPad with me, and my fingers, my whole body was sort of, I'm not sort of paralyzed, but it just didn't want to move. But I could make my fingers move. And I texted a Polish friend the following message, help, can't breathe, room 407, airport Marriott. And from my point of view, divine good luck. He got the message, instantly called the front desk. And then again, by huge good luck from my point of view, the airport ambulance happened to be right outside the airport Marriott at that moment. And for wherever they were going, it turns out, I believe, that when somebody's having trouble breathing, that that outweighs other considerations and they just rushed to my room and i don't know how long it took but you know if i had to guess i it, it it could have been like 3 minutes well somebody from the hotel opened my door cuz i couldn't have gotten up to open the door the two MTs just leapt across the room no how are you or or anything else no 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 conversation even they just hmm. slapped a oxygen mask over my mouth and nose and it didn't make any difference uh, because my ability to breathe was like a bow constrictor, sort of constricting my ability to take a deep breath. And the uh, they they injected me. I think the first couple of injections were epinephrine, as if I was having anaphylactic shock. No impact whatsoever, and I'm just you know getting in worse shape by the second because not being able to breathe. I don't wish it on anybody, but it's, you don't want it. Um, they, they got real serious. I could tell that it went from being, um, you know, an average event to something more serious. And they, they went through their, their medical bag and picked out another syringe and which i later think is an antidote for Novichok, the nerve agent, but I don't speak Polish and they didn't speak English. So I don't know. Hmm. Um, but anyway, they injected me in that, and quite rapidly, uh, it felt my breathing, which was feeling frozen and constricted. It it sort of, in retrospect, makes me think of ice melting. It <laughs> was uh, it was unfreezing, and I again, it's hard to estimate time, but maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes, I could take something close to a full breath. But uh, I was I was. I was sick for about almost a week afterwards. I couldn't leave the hotel. I couldn't go home. Uh, I was still having trouble breathing, but not catastrophic problem trouble breathing. I was sleeping 19 hours a day. I did see a red injection mark on my thigh, and I believe that the two people in the elevator, they had... I'm I'm told that this is this is how they do it, and I I can't remember exactly. I believe this is what happened, but I but I can't remember it happening. The the mo for for poisoning somebody with Novichok is, which is a nerve agent. There's a couple. One sharply bumps against somebody, or steps on their toe, or drops a book on their foot, or something, while the other, at the same time, injects them. And I think that's what happened to me.
0: And you, when I- you, you wrote in, in, when you in that text when you describe everything that you were saying to us. You wrote maybe it was just an allergic reaction to something, except I don't think it was. So what was it? You think it was you were attacked?
1: Okay, I I've changed my mind. When I first wrote about it, oh. Uh, I had I was still under the impression that journalists were a a, a protected class and that this wouldn't happen to me mm-hmm. although thinking about it you know the the mark on my thigh the bright red bee sting kind of thing how would a bee sting how would a bee sting through I was wearing like a tunic trousers underwear I don't think a bee could sting through through that much um and I've never been allergic to anything so Uh, And then when I learned that there's a group called Bellingcat and the head of it was on CNN saying that 100 journalists have been neutralized. And suddenly I thought, I'm now sure that 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 I'm a assassination attempt survivor, because, you know, if I'm not allergic to anything and I have this beasting light mark on my leg, and it can't have been a bee sting because I don't think there's a bee sting in the world that would sting through three layers of fabric, but a hypodermic would. By the way, uh, when I got home and I had x-rays, um, a third of one of my lungs wasn't functioning. Uh, and I had heart issues for like a couple of months afterwards. Uh, but And and I've talked with people who who know a lot about how this is done and there's you know it's quite well known how it's done particularly in Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a woman who specializes in this said my chances of surviving that were minuscule. If the if I hadn't had my iPad right nearby, if my Polish friend hadn't taken it seriously, uh, if the EMTs hadn't been right outside the building, uh, I might not be telling you about
0: this. You're lucky you were saved. The way you describe uh, it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh it's it's kind of creepy to think how close mm. I came to eternity. And I really was fairly sick for a, a couple of months afterwards. Um I was I was having trouble chewing. My my teeth felt squishy in a way that's hard to describe. Mm. I mean, I'm gonna invite you and anybody listening, pretend you're chewing on something, clamp down, chew, clench your teeth and if they hit something solid in my case i was hitting something like squishy so i went to the dentist and the dentist said your teeth are so inflamed uh, that the tissues to hold them in place are are not firm right now you're if you're in danger of losing all your teeth mm. uh, and he was he was ready to send me to a super duper specialist in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said on um, he has a scale of um, inflammation and it goes from one to nine. And he said, normally, you know, who's ever listening to us and you and me, you probably vary in inflammation between one and three. I mean, they're just times when you get a little bit inflamed. And he said that he'd never seen me with, more than maybe one or two possibly three but it was a full-scale nine as bad as you can get and he said your teeth your gums are a reflection of other tissues inside your body like if your heart is inflamed uh, it's going to look like that or this will be this will show it and at that period my resting heart's normally 65 it never went below 100 for several months and I did lose eight pounds. So, uh, you yeah, know, I went through something. And Mitzi, I can't wait to go back.
0: You cannot wait to go back. You just shared before we started this podcast that you were going back in one, one month? Yep. Mitzi, before we talk about this next trip to... Ukraine. Another story that was published recently by you um, on the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents website. Um, you talk in that publication about a Rus- Russian troll farm in Ukraine. What was happening there?
1: Oh, I was when in all my trips, I, I have the wonderful, somewhat unique <laughs> uh, contact. My my hosts for all of these trips are the uh, the the Ukrainian police. In initially, it was the Kiev region police, and they're the ones who discovered things like um, like war crime. Not discover; they document. And one of the things that they had uncovered was a troll farm. And here's how a troll farm, or at least the one that I know about, or that they discovered, how it works. They, in a, a town, maybe a couple of hours from Kiev. there was an old abandoned garage. I don't know what tip enabled the police to come in and, and find it, but when they broke in, you know, the, the, the bad guys had left, they discovered 3,000 SIM cards. Those are the cards that you put in a phone that identifies you as you. And there were a bunch of computers and cell phones And it turns out that the 3,000 SIM cards, each one was connected. They're fake, but was connected with a fake Ukrainian identity. So if you have one of these SIM cards, you can sign up. Um, One of the most obvious ones is you sign into YouTube. And anything that's pro-Ukraine, you downvote. And you've got 3,000 of these. (laughs) You can put an awful lot of downvotes from what looks like people who are Ukrainians. Or you can set up an identity. um, Say say you want to cause divisiveness in the United States. You're going to pick, you you or people in St. Petersburg have studied what the most divisive issues are. And you, as a troll, with a Ukrainian identity, 3,000 of you, uh, you can just start flooding, whether it's pro or whether it's anti, whatever it is, Whatever affinity group, and you you do everything you can to amplify and echo the dissension, because the more people are, the more we in the West are arguing with each other and mad at each other, uh, the better off it is for Mr. Putin. And that's what the troll farmers do; they accentuate division. Well, this. Can I give you a case example? Of course. All uh, right, I have I have friends in the Christian community who absolutely believe that that President Zelensky is closing down churches right and left because he's an atheist and, and hates religion, and uh, that Russia is a better country because it cherishes religion. Uh, I, I have. Friends in the Christian community who just plain deeply believe that, but it's no accident that they believe it because the troll farmers will go to Christian communities and they they say, I'm from Ukraine and this is what I've seen. And, you know, it's convincing, especially if you have so many of them. On the other hand, uh, if if you happen to be anti-Christian or anti-religion, boy, you can find affinity groups where... um, where you can just fend the flames on the other side. And there are researchers in St Petersburg who are studying, you know, probably 8 or 10 hours a day, I don't know, what the what the fracture points are in the United States and they're there to amplify them.
0: Mm. This story the troll farm or farmers our listeners they can read in our website and so many stories that Mitzi you worked on are available on website to end this conversation for this podcast you already spoke about it but I would like to ask what is your next project
1: oh I'm very very involved in and I don't know if I'll succeed but here's what I'm trying when I when I was in Ukraine I was interviewing war crimes and I came across people who obviously had severe mental issues such as total sleeplessness or depression or panic attacks. And the World Health Organization says that there are 15 million people in Ukraine right now who have severe symptoms, mental health symptoms resulting from the trauma of war. Mm. There's no possibility of getting enough psychotherapists to help them right now what if there were a way of, of providing kind of emergency first aid? And anybody who wants to be part of this project, please contact me. Uh, there's a woman in Ukraine, a police officer, her name's Irina. Uh, she, she's the translator for, for when I interviewed war crime victims. What she would like to do is interview war crime victims, say somebody who's enduring sleeplessness, mm-hmm. Talk, and it's likely to be a woman, Talk with her for three or four minutes about what brought her to this state and the symptoms that she has, and then I have in this in the U.S. There's 65 psychotherapists in New York who volunteered to provide emergency first aid, but uh, it would be like 10 minutes worth, and it would be, oh, uh, it would be turned into a YouTube channel, so. You know, they they will tell the woman who's suffering from sleeplessness. And this is like one that's sort of in planning right now. The therapist says, "I've, I've been treating people for 30 years. I can't make your problems go away, but I can give you a couple of tips that have helped my clients. And then he gives a couple of tips. Then we make this into a YouTube channel. And we have a list right now of 37 different mental health issues that people have from the trauma of war. And the idea is, if we get this YouTube channel working, that people from any country, because we can put it in many languages, can get advice and you see what led to it, and then you see what the emergency first aid is.
0: While looking forward for the result of this new project, Mitzi, the Foreign Press Podcast spoke today with Mitzi Pardieu. Thank you so much, Mitzi, for this interview.
1: Oh I've loved every second of it. Thank you. And I love a chance to talk with my colleagues. Love it. Thank you.